Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You guys have heard me talk about Red Door Grill for almost a year now on 610 Sports Radio, and they're the proud sponsor of the Bobcast. And I'll tell you what, I'm a proud eater at Red Door Grill. In fact, my family and I love going to Red Door Grill, not just on Mondays for burgers or Thursdays for fried chicken, but just about every single day of the week. Because every time we walk into a Red Door Grill location, we're walking out of there feeling satisfied, feeling great, and knowing we got some of the best food in Kansas City. $5 burgers on Monday is where the week starts. You're not going to find a better deal than that. The best burger in town for just $5. You want some fries, it'll cost you a buck more. And then on Thursday, we have the jalapeno dipped fried chicken. That fried chicken starts marinating on Monday. It marinates on Tuesday. It marinates on Wednesday. It's got the herbs and spices to get into that chicken, and then boom, they flash fry it on Thursday to give you the best fried chicken that you'll ever have. And then, of course, happy hour every weekday, Monday through Friday from 3 to 6. That's where we cash in sometimes on Fridays as well. Enjoy those great drinks. Enjoy the great appetizer specials from 3 to 6 every single weekday at Red Door Grill. And with three locations, there's one close to everybody. 159th and Antioch, 119th and uh, Row in Town Center Plaza in Leewood and Camelot Court. And, of course, you can find the location in Brookside as well. It's Red Door Grill. For over 30 years, Al Wallace was a major figure in the Kansas City sports scene, working at Channel 4, covering big-time events everywhere you went in the sports world in Kansas City. There was Al Wallace, whether it was World Series, Chiefs playoff games, or what was most important to him, NCAA games featuring the Kansas Jayhawks. Well, Al has now stepped away from the TV screen, and he's writing a book called One for the Coyotes, Here's our conversation with former Channel 4 sportscaster on the latest Red Door Grill podcast, Al Wallace. I think the news was surprising to all of us. After 33 years at Channel 4, one day, Al Wallace says, that's it, I'm hanging him up. And Al, I mean, for a guy that's been around the block in Kansas City, you sure really have kind of seen it all here in Kansas City from a, a sports perspective. And I'm, I'm just going to start it off with a simple question for you. What was your best moment in 33 years of covering sports in Kansas City? <laughs> My best. Uh, why, man, you just you just threw a bucket of water all over me or confetti or something. Yeah, 33 uh, years First of all, thanks, thanks for inviting me in. You got it. And my best moment, um, it, it had to be a team moment. And as much as I enjoyed the, the run of 14 and 15 with the Royals in the playoffs after a 20 20- – 24 year 24 29 year drought mm-hmm. 29 year drought yeah <laughs> hard to add that many years um i would have to say my best moment was watching KU win the national championship in 2008 that um just the way they won that game the fact that they won that game the fact that two of the best college basketball coaches currently on the court, on the bench, on the sideline now, had tried so desperately since Larry Brown in 1988 to get that job done, to watch one of them finally get it done, to, to, to watch there and, the, and to be there for that was, was, I would frame that as number one. Now, there's, there, there's probably a 1A and a 1B, 
but I would have to say that was one. That was that was man. I'm glad I was there for that. And, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that because everybody knows who knows you knows a KU basketball for a Texas Tech guy, right? Mm-hmm. KU basketball was like the most important thing to you. And I remember covering NCAA tournaments over the years, and you'd be there. And I'd hear from JW, your your camera guy at the time at Channel 4, you don't understand what this means now. This is the most important thing in his life. He'll do anything he can to be it and make sure he's at these KU basketball championship games and stuff. Why did KU basketball become so important for a guy who grew up in Texas and went to Texas Tech? That is an excellent question. Thank and you. I'm not just blowing smoke. That's an excellent question. And, and it goes back to a couple of things. Number one is my love of history and my appreciation of history. And you mentioned the fact, Bob, that I grew up in Texas. Well, I was born in Texas, but my dad was a military guy. Mm -hmm. So we lived around the world, but eventually settled back in my hometown of Texas, Mineral Wells, which is about 20 minutes west of Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth. We settled there when I was in fifth grade. And so I grew up appreciating and involved with Texas high school football. By the time... I moved to Kansas City in 1985. I was obviously I was still a Texas football guy and in a lot of ways I still am. But even before I was a Texas football guy, I was an appreciation of history guy. It took me a couple of years, even past 1988 and following KU and Kansas basketball. It took me a while to truly appreciate sports and history, and what Kansas basketball meant. And once that got into my bloodstream, not just professionally, but also personally, and it's not just Kansas basketball, it's Lawrence, Kansas. I met my wife there. Mm -hmm. She was born in Lawrence, raised on a farm south of Lawrence. Even though we lived in the Kansas City metro, she insisted that both my daughters be born in Lawrence. So when she's in labor... I'm on the highway. How far did you have to drive for that? Once was Prairie Village, (laughs) I-70, to Lawrence Memorial Hospital. (laughs) And once was K-10, when we lived in Overland Park, still do, uh, to Lawrence Memorial Hospital. Did you make it both times? One time I made it with eight hours to spare. Uh One time I made it with 20 minutes to spare. Wow. Yes. So it's not just Kansas or Kansas basketball. It's Lawrence, Kansas, my family's appreciation and love of that town, city, whatever, and history. That's pretty impressive to, to, to hear that, that your wife is You didn't is think like, I'd be so long-winded. Well, well, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't think your wife, who's in labor, would demand to have babies born in Lawrence, which is like a half hour away at the, at the closest from both of those well, locations. Well, we were, you know, obviously if things would have come to a head, we'd have done what we'd have had to do, and I'd have gotten to St. Luke's or St. Joseph's or whatever, or, you know, the cop or with the escort and stuff. Sure. But but that's where her doctor was, you know, and um, that's what the plan was. And we, we stuck to the plan, and it worked out. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's really, you talk about your love of history, and, and I know from, from listening to the podcast you did with John Holt of, of you growing up all over the world and having some experiences that, like, nobody can, can ever experience at all. And, and you mentioned the Cub Scout experience with him, which <laughs> I, I want to get into that in, in a little bit. But all those experiences, and then you come here and you're like, yeah, that is the most historic maybe basketball program on planet earth because without the university of kansas you don't have north carolina and you sure as heck don't have kentucky either bob we all live history we all have our own history and i i appreciate my own history more than more than anything other than my family 
you know, and and the, and the the way we've the way I met my wife, the way uh, I courted my wife, the way we've raised our kids, um, not me, but you know, my wife raised both our daughters to be Jayhawks. One's graduated, one's going to be a sophomore this coming fall. So um, I, I just have a tremendous appreciation for history because uh, history, uh, what you do today matters. What you did yesterday matters in regard to today and tomorrow. What we do today matters in regard to tomorrow. I don't care what you're doing in life. And I've always uh, appreciated that. I've tried to, to, to live that way. Uh, sometimes I do. Some days are better than others when it comes to appreciating that and 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 trying to uh, teach that to my kids. Um, if you go back through the years, or if you get on my Facebook page and you go back, my last day on on the air at Fox Four was December twentieth, two thousand eighteen. But that entire week prior to that, I posted my four favorite stories from the last 25 years. And if I can think of these uh, immediately, I'm going to try to uh, try to list them. One, I did a story on the um, home of the chiefs at the end of the national anthem Mm -hmm. at Arrowhead. But I went back and I researched, well, where did this come from? Where did it start? And I ran that story back in like 1995 home of the chiefs. Where did that start at Arrowhead stadium? And I had to research the the national anthem itself, Francis Scott Key, and I got Lamar Hunt talking about it. But that was a chunk of history. Uh, Another story I did was on um, the border war between Kansas and Missouri. And I I, I tied it to basketball, yes. But I talked to a former Jayhawk, Ryan Robertson at the time, or a current Jayhawk. This was like in 1999 when this story aired. And I talked to a former Tiger, John Sunvold. Both guys... Didn't care about the Civil War, but that's where the border war started, sure. and Quantrill's raid. And I did another. That was two of them. I did another story um, on my dream job, and during a sweeps piece, uh, a sweeps month, we all had to do a story, or we had to suggest stories. And my story was: if I wasn't doing sports, what would be my dream job? And my dream job would be to teach. I've always wanted to teach. So I got hooked up with the Olathe School District, and they let me teach a history class. And that was one of the most challenging stories I ever did because I found out I was a very boring person trying to teach history. (laughs) Right. But then again, it was in April for May sweeps. These students had been in the classroom for eight months. I put them to sleep. I was a guest speaker. What would you do when you were in high school or junior high? You got a guest speaker? You you mentally took a day off. Sure. And I'm trying to think of the other story that I did. And I did a story on Gunther Cunningham. When he first got the Chiefs job, a head coach, and I don't know, Bob, you think back to to Gunther, may he rest in peace? Mm -hmm. Gunther was a bit of a klutz as a head coach. A little bit. He was one of those guys who was much more, uh, much more, he was much better as an assistant coach or a coordinator. Mm -hmm. He was really a terrible head coach. Right. But Gunther's roots uh, took him back to Germany, which is where I used to live, and I asked him one day after uh, practice, I said, hey, um, what'd you tell the team in that initial team meeting before the first day of training camp? And he said, uh, I, I showed him a clip from uh, the movie, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Normandy, what was it? Um, yeah. Private Ryan, Private Saving Ryan. Private Ryan. Right. So, so much of that was Gunther. Let's storm the beach. You know, damn the guns up on the hill. Let's storm the beach. 
And uh, so those were my four favorite stories. In one way, shape, or form, they all had something to do with history. And so as I ramble once more, um, those were the things that I, that I, I felt important. And, and all of those have something to do with history. Did that appreciation for history have to do with, you know, growing up a military guy? Did that shape everything for you, like having all those experiences living overseas and, and living in different places? Did that really, like, narrow you down to say, man, history is very important? Yes. Yes. Um, and not only that, was growing up in the 60s, which were such a volatile decade. Mm-hmm. So many important things happened. We still refer after the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 1000s. We still refer to 1968 as this this decade of change and upheaval and and so many quote unquote difference makers. So many people had a significant um, had significant points or events in their lives that helped shape our lives. And I was able to see those, even though I was extremely young. But it took me until you know I was 10, 12 years old to realize, and I did quickly that these things are important. And I, I waited throughout my high school years and my college years, and I just didn't see anything else uh, supplanting these things or uprooting these things as far as the priority of importance. So what made you then decide that sports and television was where you wanted to go if history was such a big part of your life? I grew up in a time, we all did to a certain extent, I know my me and my co-author, David Smell, we mm-hmm. grew up in a time where you know, easily. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have cell phones. You wanted to, if you were a kid and you wanted to find something to occupy your time, most often you went outside and you found something to do. Or your mom or your dad said, most of all your mom, because most likely she wasn't working and the dad was, but mom said, go outside, go outside and play. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? I want to go outside and play. And so those are the things that I had to do to occupy my time. If I wasn't outside, though, I was inside watching and hogging the one television that eight, the eight Wallace kids had. And, I, you know, we all grew up. If you like sports, you grew up playing sports and right. trying to appreciate sports. But I grew up watching TV. I'm 12 years old, and I don't care where I was, Most of, and especially in the summertime, I was usually outside playing, freeze tag, hide and seek or whatever. I'd get a rock and a stick. We'd make up a game. But at 10.20 at night, I was in front of the TV, and I was watching Vern Lundquist deliver sports on WFAA Channel 8 in Dallas. That's what I did. That was routine. You grew up in a military family, you develop a routine. I liked watching TV. I liked watching sports on TV. I was 12. I said, I want to be a sportscaster. I had no idea what it would take to get that done, but I knew that's what I wanted to be. A lot of people retire and they don't know what they want to be. My dad retired a few years ago. He says, I still don't know what I want to be. But I kind of have the same story as you. I was eight years old watching John Madden going, I'm obviously never going to play these sports. I'd like to go and talk about them. And and here we sit. And I think you and I are in the vast minority of kids who know exactly what they want to do, are able to do it, and are happy. It doesn't happen to everybody. No. But but when you look back at it, when you look back on your life, there, there there are moments. There have to be moments that you look back on, that you find value in. Because you listen to Madden once mm-hmm. and then twice, and it wound up being a hundred times. And, and you, start, you started to love the value that he gave you, the insight that he gave you, and then you developed your own. Yeah. You developed your own mental system. 
that mental system turned into another system that you eventually put down on paper or that you implemented some way, shape, or form in your life that became part of your daily life. And that allowed you to what? Now you're the guy. You're the Madden asking the questions mm-hmm. and getting the insight. It's And it's all part of history. And it's such a small world, too, because my first job was in Seguin, Texas, at the same radio station that Vern Lundquist had his first job Seguin. in, too. Yeah. Sol Ross State? No, Texas Lutheran University. Sol Ross State is in Alpine, Texas. Alpine, close. Which No, no. no Seguin, no. East Texas? Se- Seguin is San Antonio. Right, right out 20 miles outside I'm of San Antonio South. to Seguin. the east. Yeah. Right Look to the you. east no of kidding. San Antonio. Seguin, that yeah. was your first? That was my first job, yeah. That was my first. Cordell Patrick, who used to be at Channel 41, started at the same radio station in Seguin, Texas. So it's got quite the pipeline of average people coming Burn out Lundquist of there. Right? Lundquist went the south. He he went to Texas Lutheran University. It was Texas, Texas Lutheran, Lutheran College at the time. Somewhere yeah. down around Austin. Yeah. San Antonio. Yeah, Seguin is where it was. Texas Lutheran College was his his university. And then years later, I think the year I got there in 1999 to broadcast their games, they changed over to Texas Lutheran University and went from TLC to TLU. So a little roundabout connection story right there. It is a small world. All right. So you, you did what everybody does when they retire. You decided, you know what? I'm going to write a book, one for the Coyotes. It's out now. You're doing book signings all over the place. Why did you decide to write a book? Like, was that just the next step? What made you decide to write that book? Um, I'm going to let David Smale tell part of this story. Okay. But it wasn't some big epiphany that Al Wallace one day said, and said, I'm going to write a book. This started with David Smale. And um, I'll put it this way. He hasn't not necessarily been on me for the last four or five years to write a book, but it, it was his idea that Al Wallace write a book. I'll put it that way. David, why did why did you decide like Al Wallace was the perfect guy to go out here and write a book? Like what was the what was the attraction, I guess you could say, to Al where you said, you know what? You're the guy. You gotta write this book. I, I don't want can you just not listen for a second? Um <laughs> opportunity. Yeah. Um Al's Al's book is number seventeen that I've written. And when I saw on Facebook that he was stepping down from Fox 4. I didn't know all the details, but I found out he was leaving. Um, we had had a conversation a few years earlier, and I said, if you're ready to write that book, I'm ready to help you. And so what, what, made, what made him an attractive person for an author? You've done 17 books. Why did you think Al would be one where you could write a book, it would be good, and you would be able to sell it and make some bucks off of this deal? Well, everybody knows Al. Everybody in Kansas City knows who Al is. Uh, if you're uh, if the least bit interested in sports, you know who Al Wallace is. Um, we, we'd run into each other covering games uh, at different, different facilities, and I knew he was entertaining just from standing around waiting for Ned or whoever to, uh, to talk to, and, and we just, you know, I considered him a friend, and it was an opportunity. I thought, I thought he was well enough known and had enough story, enough history, using that word, um, that it, would be, it could be successful. And my love of history as well uh, just made it a natural fit. All right, Al. Let, let me let me ask you this now. When when David came up to you the first time and said, "Write a book," did you did you pull the typical Al Wallace? I am not writing a book. I got too much other stuff going on. Did- exactly what I said. Exactly what I said. Um, um. Truth be told, we're out at the K. This is 2015, 16. It's been three, four, five years, and we're waiting on Ned. I'll try to make this story short. Sure. We're waiting on Ned to do his daily press conference at 4.30. Well, it's about 4 o'clock, and 4 or 5 of us are standing around, sports writers, you know, geeks, whatever. We're standing around. Uh, I Call me a geek, not you, David. 
um, we're standing around and telling tall tales. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Everybody does that around the water cooler, sure. whatever industry. But David tells the story of this is a fact that he was at the Pine Tar game in New York, old Yankee Stadium, 1983, with his wife. And they're watching the Pine Tar game, and he tells exactly how he saw these events happen. Somebody makes an out. Willie Wilson, I think, in the top of the ninth, makes a second out of the inning. There's two outs. Somebody in their party or near them that they're sitting with, 20 rows behind the Royals dugout, says, this game's over, let's go. But David says, no, we still got one out. You know Washington's going to come up, hit a single. George is going to hit a home run. And that's exactly what happened. George homers. George crosses home plate, goes in the dugout. Here comes Billy Martin complaining about something. David's wife says, what, what's the deal? What are they talking about? Tim McClellan, what are they doing? They're looking at the bat. David says, I bet they're going to complain. George has got too much pine tar on his bat. Sure enough, McClellan looks at the dugout, puts up the out sign with his thumb. George rushes out. The pine tar game becomes the pine tar game. David tells this what I would call a tall tale, which was true. Sports writers don't sit around and tell fabricated tall tales. They're right. all because I was there when this happened. I was there when that happened. Or I knew a friend who was there, etc. Then David says, I told a tall tale. I couldn't tell you what it was. I could not tell. But after we get done with Ned, he pulls me aside and says, you tell a good story. You should write a book. And I must have looked at him like he was from Mars. I said, You're, what are you talking about? He says, you tell a good story. And I said, man, I got to go. I'll see you next See you later. See you later. So over time, hey, how you doing? Write that book. In and out, in one ear, out the other. Well, when he approached me in December of 2018, after I had announced I was leaving, for the first time, it clicked. It's not like I got a, a job anymore or something to do. So we decided to, after the holidays, the first week of January, we sat down and had a cup of coffee. The and genesis of the book. And you wrote the book. It's called One for the Coyotes. And I keep looking at that name and I'm thinking, is it Coyotes? Is it Coyotes? But it is Coyotes. I know that. Wiley Coyote. Right. I understand. Right. Sure. But I'm thinking, what does that have to do with Kansas City sports? What's the name? What's the significance of the title? The uh, The title comes from um, my history and my roots of, in Texas high school football. So I grew up in north central Texas, small town, a little bit bigger than Leavenworth, uh, called Mineral Wells. Uh, Dave Helling, who writes for the Star, was born in Mineral Wells, Texas, just like I was, Mm -hmm. even though I was born on the nearby Army base. But back in the late 60s and early 70s, while I was in high school, actually in junior high, the high school head coach was also the athletic director. But he controlled all the football systems, all the athletic systems in the high schools and the three junior highs in my hometown. Three junior highs, one high school. And so whatever offense or defense we ran in high school, the junior highs also ran them. So when you were, by the time you were a seventh grader up to the time you were a senior, you you were very familiar with the offense. It was crazy. I remember being in Texas and, and, and watching middle school practices running the high school stuff. And they're like, yes. oh, yeah, this is a system. I'm this like, is I how you Jersey. do it. Nobody yes. cared about this kind of stuff. It's a different world yes. for high school sports down it's there. It's a different world. Football. High school football. You're absolutely yeah. right, Bob. So, with that said, my head coach, Frank Beavers, who would later move on to coach at Highland Park High School, Frank Beavers knew that we would never be the number one team, not only in our district, but the number one team in the state. We were big class. We were the largest classification at the time. And the number one team 
in the state for like 25 years had dominated in that state, not Odessa Permian, Mm -hmm. Friday Night Lights, but Wichita Falls High School in our district. They were the Wichita Falls High Coyotes. He called them Coyotes. So that's what we called them. They were the Coyotes. So whenever we did any drills, this is regular season, preseason, spring football, basically 10 months out of the year. Whenever we did anything, laps, weights, bench press, sit-ups, pull-ups, whatever, you did sets of 10. But according to Coach Beavers, you always did one more, one for the Coyotes. We never beat them. They beat us 72 to nothing. They beat us 55 to nothing. But we can't even think about even getting that close unless we gave that one extra effort, one for the Coyotes. And it's that kind of work ethic, that mantra that has gotten me through not only 40 years of broadcasting, but life. That and living under the roof of a military dad, I grew up with a lot of discipline. And if you don't find discipline, I found discipline in three places. Church of Christ, my dad, and my high school head coach, football. When you say do one for the coyotes, you mentioned using it at work. Did you use that mantra when you were battling prostate cancer? In a different way. Because if I'm, if, if I, Bob, if I am lined up uh, and if I'm in a sport, football, basketball, whatever, baseball, I'm trying to beat another, I'm, try, I'm, I'm going up against another opponent who is basically equally qualified. Mm-hmm. Cancer ain't that way. Cancer's different. Cancer's got a mind of its own. Cancer can take your life. So there was a lot of, there was a significant amount of, I can do this, an extra effort to do it. But this is an opponent that has a life of its own. It's an invader. It is a, it's an, it's an enemy. Uh, I had no respect for cancer. I always respected coworkers or the opposition, whether it was five, nine or 41, mm-hmm. the other TV stations. Um, we all started on, on equal ground. Cancers was, was not that way. Did it, did it take a different, it, it took a different type of effort to beat cancer. Think about cancer is you can beat it and it can come back. Uh, if I, if I'm in a, in a game, if I'm on a team opposing another team, we find a result, they get to play me again, but I get to keep that result. Cancer can always come back. So it was a different, um, it was a different type of opponent. Absolutely. I, I don't think that I've ever shared this with anyone, but but cancer scares the hell out of me. And being a dad with an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old daughter, and you're a dad with two daughters as well, I just kind of want to talk dad to dad there for a moment. H- how did you manage, how did you handle knowing that you had cancer and knowing you had these two beautiful girls that were relying on you to be there for them? One of the toughest things we ever had to do, we, me and my wife, Marlena, is tell our kids that I had cancer. And in my case, it was difficult because our best friends who live across the street, uh, the father of that family, dad, mom, two kids, he had already been diagnosed when we met them. He had already been diagnosed with brain cancer. And he knew that his battle was going to eventually be a losing battle. He was diagnosed in 2002 and was given two years to live. Rob lived up until 2017. Wow. So, uh, you know, he fought long and hard. 
Um, so that perspective, my kids knew when I told them that I had cancer, they knew this is 2011, actually January 2012. I was diagnosed late 2011. But they knew what cancer could do and the type of battle that a family had to undertake to get by cancer. So this wasn't like, oh, I got to go do some research. They, they knew. And so that was the toughest thing to do. Um, it wasn't so difficult for me. It wasn't as difficult for me, I should say. Number one, because um, I, I never really felt that cancer was going to take my life because of the type of cancer I had. If I had to go to God and say, look, I have to have cancer, and he said, okay, Al, here's your choice, one of ten, I'd have picked the one I had because I knew the, the survival rate was so high. Mm-hmm. I knew my survival rate was 90% or better because of the early diagnosis. We call it so early, yeah. so early, and that early detection is such a key. So for someone like you who maybe has those concerns, just early detection is just is so important. Oh, I've already been it's, for the prostate exam. I'm going yeah. for colonoscopies. I'm only 42 years old. I'm like, I'm knocking all this stuff out early. I'm not wasting time. I'm not going to be one of these guys that's afraid to go to the doctor or anything because guys are. Why? I, don't, I don't understand. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Some guys are. Some yeah. guys are. And some guys are, you know, we all attack it differently. But I, I learned a lot from Rob Mullen before he passed away. And um, I mentioned this in the book. Chapter 13 of 14 chapters. I got home late from night at night. This is in January before my surgery in early February of 2012. And it's January, and it was a mild night. It's 55 degrees. And I anchored, and I got home. I pull up in my driveway, which is, you know, we got the neighborhood mailbox there, and Rob's out walking the dog. And so we always talked, you know. And it was a bright night, mild, and I, and I asked him, I said, man, how do you do it? And he just said, uh, he knew what I was talking about. How do, how, do you, how do you fight cancer? You know, how am I supposed to do this was my, basically my question. And he said, uh, he said, man, you just fight it. He said, you fight it. Bob, what's that mean, you fight it? Well, early detection, awareness, you share, uh, you go to a 5K, you contribute. You donate. You you do whatever you can to help in the fight against cancer. To some people, that means more than others, and that's totally understandable. But you do what you can do. Mm-hmm. And it, it there are very few people that can say that they don't know anyone, family or friend, that hasn't been affected by cancer. So for those who are like you that have a, a concern – just do what you can do. And sometimes it's sometimes it's nothing. And sometimes it's a lot. All right. That was heavy, right? I mean, that's some heavy stuff. Let's let's talk about some of the lighthearted <laughs> stuff. In 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 thirty-three years of, of being on the air in Kansas City, forty years being on television, I want to focus obviously on the Kansas City stuff. Yep. How have you seen this city change in the thirty-three years you've been on the air here in Kansas City or were on the air here in Kansas City? Wow. Uh, I would say the biggest change uh, sports-wise is the industry and the way players are now able to present themselves. That wasn't always the case. Back in the early years, I hosted Derek Thomas's radio show. Derek Thomas, Dan Saliamua, 
Bill Moss, Tim Grunhard, those guys, quote unquote, needed a radio show to be their voice outside of the locker room. In the locker room, and they're talking X's and O's. Outside the locker room, if they had a foundation, and, you know, uh, Carl Peterson was big into community work and foundations and stuff like that. Um, And the Chiefs still are, but it's just not as noticeable. Remember, Carl had all those signs, all the banners uh, banners around uh, the lower level of the down on the playing field. But those guys needed the voice of radio and television. They don't need that anymore. They have their own. They have their phone. They have their Twitter page. They have Instagram. They have their own voice. That's been the biggest change is just the presentation that athletes, certainly professional athletes, can use to present themselves. The biggest change. If you could rewrite something from the 33 years of Kansas City sports, change a result, change an outcome, change something, what's the number one thing you'd like to go in reverse, change, or do differently? Or see done differently, even? Missouri's still in the Big 12. Oh, yeah. That's, that, to me, that's, that's, the, that's the, my immediate first question. Man, I love the border war. I loved it. It's changed college sports as a whole in this town, uh, we don't even really discuss it that much anymore. Well, not just not just Missouri, uh, and yeah, yeah, Missouri leaving the Big Twelve, but just the whole landscape of college athletics when it came to you know schools leaving one league and going to another. Mm-hmm. But but the border war. Listen, I got no problem with Missouri's. They left because of the uncertainty and because of the revenue and all of that. I've also got no problem with Kansas saying, look. I know this for a fact, Bob. Before Missouri left, they announced we're leaving. Kansas begged Missouri to stay. Sure. The athletic director called the athletic director. The coach called the coach. The softball coach called the softball coach. The cleaning lady called the cleaning lady and said, don't leave. They begged them. They said, if you leave, I don't ever want to have this. Is, this is history between us. But this is also a business relationship between us. Please don't leave. And they left. Yeah, it really has drastically changed everything because we went, and now part of it is the Royals and Chiefs got really good at about the same time Missouri was leaving, so there wasn't much on the plate for college sports because the professional sports teams were doing things. But that really, I think, destroyed the college atmosphere that we really had in this town. It rearranged it. Like, I just, <laughs> I just, I, I wish Missouri was still in the Big 12. Yeah. That that's a no brainer. No question about it. All right. If you could assemble your dream KC coaches lineup, your dream manager for the Royals, your dream coach for the Chiefs, K U K State, Missouri, who would be on that list of the dream coaches that you you've had an opportunity to be around and cover? So you're talking about the major franchises and the three big D one schools, yeah. football and basketball. Yeah, yeah. Who who would be who would be your like dream lineup for coaches if they could all coach right at the same time? I, it'd be a tie between uh, Dick Hauser and and Ned. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, Dick Hauser was. Uh, I, I I cannot see a day where Ned is not in the Hall of Fame, Royals Hall of Fame. Sure, okay. I, I say Hall of Fame, absolutely Hall of Fame, but jersey number retired or something. Right. He's got to be up there with winning his manager Hauser. in history, right? Right. He won a world championship. World he, championship. Took, he took him to two world Only series. Only one other okay? guy did that. That as yeah. bad as they were for 29 years. And Ned, so Ned yeah. with the Royals. Marty Schottenheimer with the Chiefs. Over Vermeil, huh? Oh, oh, my God, yes. Really? Yes. Okay. Oh, my God, yes. I loved Marty. Yeah. Marty Schottenheimer, Marty Schott, you'd ask him a question. He would answer your question, but he wouldn't tell you one thing you wanted to know within the, within the answer. <laughs> but he knew how to answer the question. Yeah. 
Andy reads the same way. You can ask Andy a question. He'll answer it. But he won't tell you what and you want to know. He says nothing, yeah. He says nothing. Yeah. But he answered your question. Sure. Well, we, he, well yeah, we'll right. let them do with that. Right. We'll be, and he mumbles it away. Sure. You know. Um, KU football, Mangino. Yeah, KU I basketball, KU basketball, Bill Self. Mm-hmm. K-State football, uh, Bill Snyder. K-State basketball, probably Lonnie Kruger. Probably Lonnie Kruger. Mm-hmm. Missouri football, Gary Pinkle. Missouri basketball, Norm. Yeah. Easy. Norm was great. Norm. Even as a KU guy, you look at Norm and you laugh and you appreciate everything. You know, there was no, like, there was obvious animosity because it's Mizzou, but he knew how to have fun with it. And Roy Williams knew how to have fun back with it. And being a student and chanting, sit down, Norm, like, everybody appreciated and respected Norm. I don't think that's necessarily the case for coaches today. You don't have that same, I hate you, but man, I really respect the hell out of you. I don't think the Big 12, or let's say, absolutely the Big 12. When I first moved here, let's say from 1985 to 1995, when you had uh, the personalities like Norm and Roy and Johnny Orr and Billy Tubbs and and, and, um, Eddie Sutton, each one of those guys had such a unique approach to not only the game, but to their presentation of the game and of themselves. Um, I just, it'll never be the same. It'll never, it'll never be that way. And a lot of it, these guys today have nothing. They have very little to do with that. A lot of it is social media and, and political correctness. Mm -hmm. And, and I say that as though that's something, there's something wrong with that. It's just a fact. But those guys could could do and say things that that can't be done or said today. Look ten years from now. Two part question. I'll ask the first part first and the second part second. That's how it normally works. What will the sports landscape in Kansas City look like in ten years? Ten years? Yeah. Um Golly, I'm just silence here. Um I don't think I don't think we'll have the intercollegiate Big Twelve SEC as we see it today. Um, I can't. I I don't know about ownership. I don't I don't I don't know about expansion of the big of of the Chiefs and the Royals or or sporting or soccer. Uh, soccer will will continue to grow here, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is just the way over the last. 10 years, even more, that sporting has rebranded and helped reshape soccer in this community. No question. Their rebranding was the genesis of that, the foundation of that, the way they rebranded. And um, this is the soccer capital of the country now. Mm-hmm. And it's so popular. And there's still room to grow, especially if Kansas City gets the you know gets some World Cup games here. Um, but I, I, I don't know what to say about the other two. I, I sure hope that uh, ownership uh, stays, you know, I don't see, Clark Hunt will never give up this, but I, I, I don't know what, I don't know about those two futures. You think we'll have a Super Bowl championship in the next 10 years? Yes. Yeah. In the next 10 years, yeah. Oh, One yeah. or two. Or three or four no, or five. No, uh, I'd, I would stop it too, but I'd say definitely one. Yeah. I'd say definitely one. Dude. If if D Ford's not offsides, I know we at least have an appearance, right? Little things matter, mm-hmm. and that's that's one thing I try to 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 uh, uh, point out in the book, throughout the book, is that little things matter. 
little things from yesterday and today affect how we approach tomorrow. And if you don't believe me, ask D Ford because he's no longer with this team. What's the media landscape going to look like in a decade? I couldn't tell you. I, well, I, t- I will tell you this, that it will be less TV and more digital. News director uh, told me in either, I want to say 2010, Brian Magruder, news director, sitting in his office. And he said, uh, in five years, everybody will be getting their news on their phone. And I looked at him like, and he, you know, I didn't say a word, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this guy is on some kind of a drug. What the hell kind of statement is that to make? Getting your news off your phone? Are you kidding me? And to this day, to this hour and this minute, I can't, I, I can't go nowhere without my phone. That's where I get my information. Mm-hmm. So multiply that by another 10 years. Um, the way we consume information is so important. How much information do you need every day just to get your day going? Tons. There's not a Bob Fesco. What's today? July sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Bob Fesco didn't show up to work today with a with a parka on. He showed up in a short sleeve shirt because he wanted to be comfortable. So in some way, shape, or form, you knew and had to know what the weather's going to be like. I'll go speak at different groups around town, and they say we get too much weather. And I'd always tell them, you have no idea how important the weather is. Because that's something we have to have every day. I don't have to have a royal score every day. Certainly not anymore because I'm retired. Right. And that's one of the best things about retirement is the fact that I don't have to watch the Royals or the Chiefs or KU or K-State. Or, I don't have to. I like to, but I don't have to. But you absolutely, I absolutely, David Smell absolutely has to know what the weather's going to be like. We just have to. And we do it throughout the day. Count how many times throughout the day you have to look and find out what the weather's going to be like today, tonight, and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You do it a dozen times a day. What's the number one thing you want people to take away from your book? Um, that there is value in everything. There is, there is value in everything and everyone. You just have to find a way to find whatever that is, that value is. Define it, assess it, and put it to use in your life to help yourself, your family, and your friends. If, if I ever talked, Roy Williams had me over to talk to the, the basketball team once. I want to say it was the freshman year for Paul Pierce and Ryan Robertson. And, and, and I told that group the three most important things in your life when it comes to media presentation are your team, your family, and your school. You do something that's going to harm any of those, those three things, don't do it. You want to run a red light? And Al Wallace over at Fox Fork learns about it. I should say a yellow light. If you want to run a yellow light and barely make it, you know, that's not news. You run a red light and hit somebody after you've been drinking, that's news. Don't be a newsmaker. Be a difference maker. Be a difference maker. Your school, your family, your team. Those are the priorities. And think about those three things in your life. Find value in those. And... I think you're going to come out pretty good. And that's 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 basically um, the point David, Smale, and I were trying to get across. It's pretty impressive to stay in this industry for over 30 years and to do so basically at one station. Al Wallace had one hell of a career here in Kansas City, and he's going to be greatly missed on the television. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, 
celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.